At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Warning, this podcast may contain bad language and content that some listeners may find offensive. That was one. Nailed it. Straight away this time. Definitely no cuts there. And we are going to jump straight into the intro because this is a really bumper episode. No jokes. Welcome to Seesaw Podcast. With your hosts, T, Cleves, and Selena. Every week, bringing some much-needed balance and humour to brighten up what can sometimes be a dark, disabled world. Okay, I'm quite excited, because this is the first time I've got a guest on the show. I say excited, I was really nervous at the time. But it's fine, I'm excited now, because I know what it comes out like. So, we've got Naki coming up. And I recently met Naki at a look weekend. If anyone is looking for a mentor, then if you're aged between 11 and 29, get on the look website. What is it? You can be mentored by an older visually impaired person, um, such as myself or Naki, or over 100 other visually impaired people. Are you Um, old? A little bit. (laughs) But anyway, I met Naki on this weekend. I didn't really speak to him much then, but then afterwards he shared this TED talk with me and I thought, got to get him on the show. You were very um, jumping the gun there, Selena, because we specifically said before recording, let T introduce the show. T, introduce the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Seesaw Podcast. And here's Naki. Naki, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Hello, everyone. Nice to be here. And I'm not sure why Selena is that nervous, because I'm not that shit. You'll soon find out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just feeling the pressure a little bit, because it's well known on this podcast that I like to give feedback about everything and everyone else. (laughs) Oh, God. I'm putting myself at risk here. My internet connection might cut just as soon as you're doing that, so... Yeah. <laughs> so where, where do we even start with you world ranked tennis player hang on hang on hang on speaker. we haven't done the disclaimer bit that's what i was waiting for before we even started oh, that happens in post yeah also oh, disclaimer if you're a shitty guest all right okay okay you see like i really know what i'm doing here <laughs> okay so yeah like where, where to start with it i think we'll, we'll start at the beginning because like so many accolades and successes and of course, I'm going to link your your TED talk in the show notes so people can see what. Well, firstly, your fashion sense, but of, of course, like starting off, if you'd like to introduce yourself and like your visual impairment, if you if you're happy to cover that. So basically, my name is spelled N A Q I, which I know sounds a bit weird, but basically, it comes from an Arabic word, which means pure. So my parents clearly had very high aspirations, and. I was born to a Pakistani father and an Indian mother. So, so conflict started even before I was born. And growing up kind of mainly in Pakistan and spent a fair amount of time in India as well. And I was actually the first one in the family who had any eye condition. So it was completely unexpected. But I guess because my parents are cousins, it was to an extent likely. Because as, as we know, 
consanguineous relationships can lead to genetic conditions. And then a few years after that, my sister was born as well, and she has the eye condition as well. So, you know, maternal and paternal side, the two of us are the only ones, interestingly. One out of 16 probability, but hey, it's still plausible. My eye condition is congenital glaucoma, which, for those people who don't know, is around the optic nerve being damaged. So I used to get asked a lot, can you get an eye replacement? And I was like, well, firstly, you can't, but even if you could, it's a bit like if the wire is damaged, even if you change the front end, it's not really going to do much. So I was born with very, very limited sight, and I couldn't really do much in terms of my useful vision. And my parents obviously had didn't know much. When I was born, the doctor did notice that my eyes were really protruding, and they were kind of like, hmm, this, this looks a bit concerning. But obviously my parents had no idea the extent of all of this, because as a kid, unless you're Jesus, you can't really speak. So as I kind of started to get older, they started to realize when I was crawling, and if a toy fell kind of far from me, I really found it hard to find it. On my first birthday, which would normally be an occasion of joy, tenor to be one where I pretty much cried the whole time because obviously they didn't at the time, but I was enormously photophobic, so mm. I couldn't face light. And obviously with the lights and the cameras and all the stuff, I just wasn't coping well with that. So my eyesight, because the intraocular pressure being really high, kept getting worse. And by the age of seven, I was completely blind. So I did have a fair amount of light perception till I was probably in my teens but then that kind of went away as well and then nine years ago now I had a surgery called enucleation where essentially my eyes were removed and I now have prosthetic eyes so I've lost that light perception or, or any kind of sensation and that was largely to do with the fact that I used to have pain pretty much 24 7 my eyes used to water a lot and all of that stuff I used to have enormous photophobia and the doctor was kind of like why why are you living through this pain 24 7 when there were very very unlikely be any cure for glaucoma in your lifetime you're not really going to benefit from it might as well get it removed because obviously in enucleation they kind of remove the eyes but they also cut the optic nerve which is the connection to the brain but that's what often causes the pain so when that got cut i kind of have no sensation when you have prosthetic eyes what what you don't realize is because you have no light perception it really messes up your sleep because what regulates sleep oftentimes to a large extent is melatonin in your brain and melatonin gets regulated based on the amount of light, which is why they talk about, you know, don't look at blue light a few hours before sleeping, when it's nighttime, kind of the melatonin kicks in and goes like, yo, it's time to go to bed. So I've had really bad kind of insomnia for many, many years now. So I have to manage it very methodically with kind of not pulling all nighters and stuff because that really messes up my sleep because my brain doesn't always know what's day and what's night. And that's yeah. not something my doctor told me at all at the time. And I wish I'd known that because... <laughs> I don't, I don't think that would have changed the decision, but it might have made me ponder over it a little bit longer. The other obviously thing is that I have to clean my eyes every single day. Whenever I'm in the shower, I normally take my eyes out and clean them and then put, put them back. So I've gotten pretty used to it now, but at the start, it used to be really, really tricky. I guess the only advantage of being able to take your eyes out is pro probably just one day in the year, which is Halloween, where you can probably do some fun stuff with it. But other, <laughs> other than that, not really much to it. And the other thing I was really scared, scared about with my enucleation was, I don't know if if you guys, um, I don't really know the extent of your vision impairment, but I have something called phantom vision, which I think a lot of blind, blind people do, which is like you can kind of imagine what's around you, like once you felt it. Like if I close my eyes, it's pretty dark. 
if I open my eyes, if I know where I am, it's as if like I can see it. And if someone told me that particular thing is green, my my mind's eye will look at it as green. And I was really scared that if I have the surgery, but I lose my phantom vision. And I yeah. guess the answer was probably no, because that's something in the mind rather than the eye. So I luckily have, haven't lost it, but that was a huge concern of mine when I was kind of go, going for the surgery. So it kind of took about six weeks to, to recover from from it. So yeah, I guess the cool cool thing is I can now choose the color of my eyes because um, I can get them made in more fields, which I just did a couple of years ago. I did ask them if I could have green eyes because apparently green eyes are pretty beautiful, but mom said no. <laughs> <laughs> I was actually going to ask, do you have like, um, like, you know how some people have a, like watches in like a, a wooden case that slides out like concertina oh. style? Like, do you have some of that with various mm. eyes? Wouldn't that be cool though? I mean, the <laughs> problem because it's on the NHS and, each, I think, pair costs about £1,500, plus the work that goes into designing it and making it and stuff. I'm not sure if they'd be happy to give me more than a pair, but it would be cool, wouldn't it, to have a different pair of eyes for different occasions. How much fun would passport control be then? You know, a different, <laughs> eye, a different eye each time. Just the brown ones for now. So, of course, sort of growing up in Pakistan, you said you moved to around India as well, of course, like you visited India for like family. Like, how was that? Of course, I can get the perspective of like going up in the UK being mm. impaired, but of course, uh, I, I assume you you had your education in, in Pakistan as well. Yeah, and how did you find that experience? Yeah, so India was mainly something I used to do every single summer. So I, I used to spend time, and both of those countries have charities. They're probably not as big or as well funded or as famous as the RNIB. I mean, the thing you do find like. Before coming to England, I'd never really been to the West before. And one of the things you can definitely notice is because a lot of countries in Asia, Africa, for example, are not very well resourced. When They tend to be a lot more resourceful, right? Whereas when they, they, things are given to you a bit more easily, I feel there's you end up having a sense of complacency to an extent. And I don't mean to generalize it, but that's what I found in a lot of instances, not just around disability. Like the RNIB, bloody hell, their balance sheet is huge. But yeah. I'm not sure if they really have... A, as much of an impact as they could. The one in India is pro- probably, not probably, definitely a lot better and a lot more advanced. So the one I used to mainly go to is called National Association for the Blind. And mainly my mom would utilize our summers to, you know, do stuff around like when I was five, I think she, she learned Braille. I was very hesitant to learn Braille, so I didn't really, but she learned Braille so that she could teach me kind of all year round. And um, one of the other things which we actually did there was to do an IQ test because many people just think, oh, if you're blind, you're not very smart, are you? And because I was having, having lots of challenges at school, my school wasn't very sure if I was smart enough. So we did an IQ test, which was cool, but that c- came up pretty well. But school was a really interesting experience because my mom and, you know, again, she never really come across any vision impaired persons. So I'm not sure how she had the foresight to kind of, well, like, I am definitely go- going to send this kid to a mainstream school. He's not going to to a blind school. And I think her main philosophy was ultimately you'll have to live in a sighted world. When you go to go to uni or work, you'll have to be in a sighted world. Why not get that encouragement from the start? And she really went went around lots of different schools, just trying to convince them, can you take him? And every school pretty much said no. And there was this one school that said, yes, we'll take him on the condition that you become a teacher there. And that was interesting. For my mom, I was probably a very difficult decision because my mom was, like, did her MBA. And 
I think yeah. back in India to do your MBA as a woman in the 80s was a really big thing. And she was really accomplished. Like she did really well. And then to have to give all of that up was just a really big decision. So hugely grateful to her for that sacrifice. But gro- yeah. like growing up, I was the only blonde student in my school. So that was very tough. I think when you're young, kids can be so nonchalant and so playful. It used to be quite annoying for me having, you know, these kids just like tapping me and they're running away and just having fun because they knew I couldn't identify who, who they were yeah. or where they were going. So I couldn't really chase after them. So I, I used to find that really hard. And then I used to often come home and ask my mom, you know, why am I so different? Why does this going to happen to me? Why can't I see the ball like other people can? And oftentimes my mom wouldn't really have all the answers she would you know always do do her best but it's a really tough one when a small small kid who feels really different comes and asks you those sorts of questions and growing like for the first few years I think a lot of my learning was just trying to read very very large print in broad daylight and writing with a marker instead of a pen and then gradually as my eyesight kept getting worse it, it it became harder and then when I lost my sight when I was seven years old that's when it became really tricky because my school, which was actually brilliant, but again, they didn't know how to cope with someone who'd, who'd lost their sight. So they kind of said, I think we can't continue with him anymore. And then my mom was like, oh my God, what the hell do I do? And that's when she yeah. she contacted a blind scientist in the US. I was like, this is my situation. Can you help? And he was like, no, nah, I think he can definitely do it. You, you have to find ways of doing it. And again, I think she took the help of the National Association for the Blind in India and kind of learned more teaching techniques, etc. went back and then told the teachers. And I think while they were receptive, I think it's really hard when you have to change your method of te- teaching to accommodate someone else. And I, d- I don't think I fared really well because I just felt so excluded. I just felt like I couldn't learn. And it was in c- sixth grade when one of my maths teachers was like, come, when the students are doing the classwork, I'm going to teach you some maths and stuff. And I think that was really the beginning of my love for maths and you know just really made me feel great about the fact that I could do what everyone else could as well it was just a different way of doing it so it was mainly based on oral stuff and them yeah. kind of reading our stuff to me and that's how I did my exams as well and then in eighth grade my mom sort of taught me ty- typing and we got introduced to JAWS and then my school gave me the permission to have a computer in the classroom which Everyone else was really jealous of. <laughs> yeah. So for the fir- first time, you know, I had the upper hand there. And uh, I used to have a computer there for all of my assignments and stuff, which were mainly kind of English-based. Obviously, when it come- came to other subjects, like physics, chemistry, and maths, it was a lot harder. And uh, we-, we got these German plastic sheets. They were like embossing paper. So anything that you draw on them gets embossed so I could feel it. And that's what I used to use for, for a lot of those diagrams and stuff. And, you know, as I got older as well, like, I, our friendships grew at school and the guys were, like, absolutely brilliant. They didn't really treat, treat me any different in that negative sense of the word. But at this point, I would just like to say, I think this is going really well and I should get guests on all the time. <laughs> <laughs> at Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, 
engineering your success. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. Well, so you don't have to talk. <laughs> yeah, you're doing a great job. I'll do my best to drag it out for you, Selena. I'll do my best. <laughs> I should mention, I used to, in seventh and eighth grade or something, use a brailler as well. Oh, one of those Perkin ones. So I ended up being at a state where I could type really fast, but couldn't really read, loudly. Couldn't yeah, read to, to save my life. But that's when all the other kids start to hate you again. Because oh, everyone's exactly. getting their head down. Chung, exactly. But that wasn't it. The worst thing was I had to come back home and because my teachers couldn't read Braille, my mom and I would sit and every single letter she'd write on top with a pen. I was like, oh, this is so pain, painful. And we're like, this needs to change. I need to do something more in front that my teachers can actually understand. I started recording lectures in uh, classes and stuff as well. And then kind of after eighth grade is when you have to... So I did the British curriculum in Pakistan as well. So it was kind of similar to here, but here you have GCSEs, we still had O-levels and then A-levels. So yeah. O-levels were sort of 10th and 11th. And I don't know if the, if the system's harder or if it's just different, but like when I came here and I told people that I had to do a minimum of nine O-levels and five A-levels, they're like, that's a lot. They did expect that's a, lot a lot for A-levels. From you. I know, I know, that's but they expected a lot from you. So what was really interesting at the end of AIDS grade actually was because that's when you have to choose between science and comps, like business studies and that kind of stuff. And, you know, a lot of people are like, I think you should go for the latter. It's going to make your life a lot easier. And I was like, no, I love science. I love biology and maths. I really want to do science. And it was like, it's going to be really hard. How are you going to do your O-levels and then your A-levels with laboratory experiments and all of that stuff. But luckily, my parents have always been super supportive, even though They've not always had the answer or not really known where to go, et cetera. And I'm really, really grateful for that because I think if you don't have that parental support, and I can understand how nerve-wracking it can be for parents because, as I said, there was no one else in the family before me who had this eye condition, so they would have been bloody paranoid. But they just they were just always there to support, and they were just always there to say, we're behind you, and they were like, now if you want to go for science, man, go for it. But then the really tr- tricky thing that happened then was because it was a British curriculum, our exams still used to come from um, I think it was called the Cambridge International Examination Centre, the CIE. So they still come from the UK and they were like, we've never had anyone in Pakistan who is visually impaired do science, so we have no idea how to, how to make it accessible. And luckily, my mom started, started that conversation quite early on, so I think it took us over a year to show them how it can be done using a combination of a computer or just written stuff, having a reader and a writer, and the embossing sheets that I talked about earlier, mainly for science subjects. And luckily, uh, after a year or so, they were like, fine, we can give this a try. And the British Council, you know, gave me um, like a scribe and a reader, etc. And kind of worked out fine. I did really well in my O-levels and then went on to a different school for A-levels because my, my school was just till, till O-levels. And, you know, I again went on to do science, which was harder in some ways because as part of your assessments, you'd have to do laboratory experiments. So we were like, well, we've started the conversation with you guys already. Let's see how we can take it a step further. So that was a bit easier. And we found ways of, you know, having an assistant for those laboratory experiments who would kind of do as I told him I had to do. 
and then kind of read out the results and then I could help interpret them, etc. So it was an interesting experience. I think what I would say is that being in a mainstream school was amazing in many ways. It made me very resilient. It made me have the most incredible friends. Not that you can't have incredible friends in a, a specialist school, of course you can. I think it just gave a certain confidence, which I felt sometimes people, especially in school, might not have. However, there are obviously some disadvantages, and I would say the two big ones that I kind of felt was number one, because I don't want to be massively different. I never used a cane, even though I bloody couldn't see a thing. I just knew where everything was, and like you know, I'd often be with friends, so it kind of made made that a bit easier. And the other thing was just from a reading perspective, I never really learned how to read Braille per probably because I never really needed it. And I kind of sometimes wish I knew Braille because my spellings were atrocious. They still are to an extent, but at the time, my goodness, I'm sure my teacher's still pro- probably smiled at the odd word that I couldn't spell. No, I, I think it's really that. interesting what you said about the, the spelling thing, actually. I remember when I was at school, like I was told that 80% of learning is visual and like 20% yeah. is listening and that's where a lot of visually impaired people are not very good spellers and actually as my vision got worse my spellings got worse because you're not seeing the words on the page so I totally get that exactly. sure. so uh, you had your success with your, your 10,000 O levels A levels putting putting me to shame but of course then yeah the, the next step higher education you, you went to UCL didn't you so I went to UCL for my master's I went to another uni for my undergrad. So I knew kind of maybe when I was 14, 15, that engineering was something I wanted to do. So I at least had that vision, which, pro- which probably helped. Because I think if I'd been confused and with all the opposition that I had in terms of, ah, oh, don't go for science, it's too tough. I probably would have given up on it, but I was really, really keen to do something in science, mainly engineering. I loved chemistry, so I thought of chemical engineering. And then in my first year of A-levels, my dad got a job in Saudi. So he moved to Saudi. We obviously stay, stayed back because I needed to finish my education. And my sister was doing her second year of O-level, so it would have been a lot of disruption for both of us. And then I obviously, just like every hopefully competent kid, applied to lots of unis in the UK and the US because that, that, that's what I wanted to do. I'd never been to, you know, I'd never really been outside of Asia at that point. And everyone said, oh, the West is great for, for accessibility and stuff. You should really apply and, you know, you've got the grades and I'm like, fine, I'll do it. And I applied to 10 unis in the US and not one of them accepted me. And uh, you know, it's really hard to say because they're never going to say, oh, because you're blind, we didn't accept you, et cetera. But who knows if that was. But some, a lot <laughs> of my friends who were pro- probably equally as good as me got into some of the really good unis. And because I was a, applying for engineering and natural sciences, et cetera, I don't know if they had a part, part to play, but <laughs> literally none of them accepted me. And that day I literally wept in front of my mom for that. I just never expected that. I'm like, I'm not a bad student. I've done so well. Uh, I've gotten like my A's in chemistry and maths, et cetera. Why are they not accepting me? But in the UK as well, I got accepted by two unis here. And both of them, I have no idea why, just said, fine, we'll offer you an admission. But even for your disability services, you have to pay about £35 an hour. I'm like, this is unacceptable. I cannot afford all of this. So I had to unfortunately say no to these unis. And then I was left without a uni. And then the option was go for a gap here or do something else. And then my family moved to Saudi. And then someone said, oh, there's a new university in Riyadh. You might want to check check out. And it was very new. Uh, we were like, what have we got, got to lose? We yeah. we went there and tried. And they were kind of like, nah, 
I think it's going to be a bit difficult because you can't see with engineering and stuff. But the really interesting and serendipitous thing was a week before the orientation, I got a text and, and it was like, we invite all our students joining us this year to come to Riyadh for the orientation. So my family used to live in in the eastern province in the Mam, it's about 400 kilometers, so it wasn't close. And when I got the text, I, I didn't bother to, uh, to verify it. I'm like, let's just go. And we all went. Yeah. And I called them and I was getting on the train and they were like, no, nah, man, we sent you that text by mistake. Like, you don't have admission. I'm like, shit, I bought the ticket, mate. I'm coming. We're yeah. going to make a day trip out of this. And then we went and then we just waited to hopefully speak to someone. Couldn't get anyone. And then in the afternoon, we were like, we're not going home. We need to speak to the dean. And I find he's going to come, come in the evening, go for it. And then I sat with him. He kind of spoke to me about why I wanted to do it and asked me a few questions about how I study, et cetera, et cetera. And then he was like, mm, maybe I need to check with the board. You need to give me a week. And then luckily after a week or so, he was like, fine, we're willing to, to admit you on a trial basis. Mm-hmm. And I was just obviously on, on cloud nine. I was like, this is fantastic. Yeah. But it was like, we'll try for, for six months. If you do well, number one, you... You can continue your degree, and number two, you can get a scholarship. Because again, it was really expensive. My my parents have, you know, I would never want to burden them with tuition fees because it is horrendously expensive everywhere. And I was like, yeah. I need a scholarship. I can't function. Like even in that uni, the fees was about eighteen, nineteen thousand pounds a year. Like my parents can never afford it. So yeah, I did, as you can imagine, did did really well. Um, after my first semester, which was a six month, I actually got pretty much all um a grades and i find i think we can we can continue and that's how yeah. kind of the four years went i absolutely loved every single year of it what i found amazing was that the professors could see how keen i was to learn they really went out of their way to help me learn and find ways in which we could cope so for one of the core one of the courses in computer aided design my professor was like i'll be a screen reader because no screen readers can cope with that i'll yeah. essentially tell you what's on the screen I'll help you understand how you work the system. And then he like 3D printed one of my <laughs> things that kind of made me feel what the end output was like. And it was just those yeah. things that just made you feel so much more value, right? And it's like, if you can make the adjustments for someone, they can do it. And again, my friends were kind of really keen to help. And mm-hmm. there was a friend of mine who struggled with a lot of different concepts, whereas I got the concept really well, but obviously I couldn't read the book. So we kind of struck this deal where he'd read out to me and I'd explain the concepts to him. And it, it worked as a really good partnership. We were really, really good friends and kind of studied together pretty much every single weekend, etc. And the thing that really sticks out to me was, you know, four years after that, because again, this was an American university, so it's four years rather than three. Um, so my mom had kind of told me when I was going for science, you know, it is my dream to see you graduate as, as an engineer and to become one because she knew how hard it would be. And I just didn't know if I could ever fulfill that dream. And then four years, which Oh, no. which was kind of near my graduation time. I told my parents, you've got to come to my graduation. And my parents and sister came. And what I didn't tell them at the time was that I was going to give the student speech because despite being the only kind of person in my cohort with a vision impairment, I actually had the highest grade amongst everyone else. So they chose me as a, as a student speaker. And that for me was honestly one of the proudest things to kind of think about the dream my mom had all those years ago and see me graduate as, as an engineer. And then here I was with that certificate in hand as an industrial engineer. And the really cool thing on the back of that was when I got out of the hall, one of the CEOs approached me and was like, I'd love to have you in my company. And I just never thought that could be possible. I'm like, why would you 
why would you have a blind guy come and work for for you? Mm. But just to kind of see that openness and him kind of willing to explore and stuff was just amazing. And that's the company I ended up working with kind of for a yeah. few months after and then did that for two two years and then came to UCL to do my master's in systems engineering, which again was an amazing experience. I work in higher education and like from what I see from engineering, like they're always about mm. how like being creative in solving issues. Yes. I'm, I'm just surprised hearing like how much pushback you got from so many places, even doing the the trial at, at the place like the university you ended up going to. Like mm. I'm just thinking, well, that's engineering. It's creative solutions using methods that no one would ever think of for yes. a problem. And I'm surprised that there was so much pushback because you would think they'd relish the challenge of <laughs> right, let's make the entire curriculum accessible to everyone in the most creative yeah. way we possibly yeah. can. Part of it is to do with the, you know, the creativity pro- probably reaches the limit when they see a blind person that, oh my God, this person. But also a lot of the times when you're actually working with, with universities and stuff or with institutions, the people who accept you or hire you are not those guys, right? They're often people in NHR or in certain departments who probably don't have those skills and they're like, oh, I'm not sure. Will it be good for our bottom line? Will it be good for our reputation, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. And then obviously that kind of then makes it a little bit harder as well. So it's not as straight, straightforward, but I think. With all of those experiences, I've found like once you speak to them, once they understand how you work and that it is a question of making adjustments rather than your mind not being good enough, they really go out of their way to help you out. And that's what I found. Like I had an amazing time in, in both of my unions with just my professors being so willing to help and kind of students, you know, seeing whatever they could do to, to help out as well. Absolutely. And you made a great success of it as well. So. Yeah, props I tried. to you to put in the putting in all the effort and proving everyone wrong. Welcome back to the wraparound sensation that is Seesaw. We hope you enjoyed the first part of this episode, which is going to be multiple parts, of course, implied by what I just said. The force of the second part next week, and there is a third part which we will release in the future. So at some point, who at knows? some point. So hit us up on the following links and we will see you next week. Say goodbye, everyone, to prove I'm not on my own. Thank you for listening to Seesaw Podcast. Your feedback and comments mean a lot to us. So if you'd like to get in touch, you can do so in the following ways. You can find us on Twitter at SeesawPod. Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube at Seesaw Podcast. And you can also join us at SeesawPodcast.com. Remember to like, rate, review us, and share us with a friend. This podcast was recorded in front of a blind audience. Uh, I'm going for a quick toilet break. <laughs> we can continue. <laughs> Please put yourself on mute. And camera turned off.